Welcome to Crime Beyond Borders from the Journal of Illicit Economies and Development and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. My name is John Collins and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the last decade of drug policy advocacy. In particular, evaluating the outcomes, challenges and opportunities of this advocacy. With me to discuss this is Diane Steiber-Buchli, who is a Senior Advisor at the Swiss Federal Office of Public Health, Khalid Tanasti, who is a visiting lecturer at the Geneva Graduate Institute and a visiting fellow at the Shanghai University, and Deborah Limi, who is a founder of the research-based initiative Dalith Research and associate researcher at the Sorbonne University. I began by asking Diane to walk us through what has changed in international drug policy since the political declaration in 2009 until the UN General Assembly Special Session on Drugs in 2016. Well, in 2009, the political declaration stated that it was going to be a declaration for 10 years and that it suggested there should be an ANGAS midterm. And the lead up after 2009 to the ANGAS, in my view, was one of the most important times in, in this decade, especially because we managed to get other UN entities to get involved in the preparations and lots of member states into the negotiations of the 2016 ANGAS outcome document. And after the ANGAS outcome document in 16, we've had the 2019 political declaration that was basically to be expected after 2009. The declaration that was 2014 was not a very important one and was also not very substantial in its contents. And so maybe, Deborah, if I could go to you next. So what do you think were those major changes that we saw around the 2016 UNGAS? I think the 2016 UNGAS constituted really a unique moment where the policy cards on, on illicit drugs could be redistributed in a way. The agenda was back in the making uh, at that time because thanks to the dissonance episode that precipitated this special session of the UN General Assembly on Drugs, somehow the drug policy arena started to reassess the policy that was ongoing at the international level, at national level, as well then at the local level. So it was really a key as, uh, reassessing moment of what policy we wanted, how we wanted to be made, and who we wanted to see at the table to write it. So that the whole UNGAS process was really rich in mobilization, in proposing and advancing all sorts of solution and alternative to the uh, drug control or and strictly security-oriented drug control. Some made it to the agenda, others didn't, but it was a key moment of policy emulation of ideas and advocacy efforts. And if I had to pick key changes of that moment, I would identify maybe two elements. The first one would be really the opening of the perspective for drug policy. There was really a, a start of a disenclaving process in the way we understood the drug problem and also the way we understood how policy could best respond to them. There were moments where some member states were tempted to go back to basics of the convention, but with a stronger focus and a rebalancing towards health but also a moment where different stakeholders reread the convention in light of the evolution and the complexification of the drug-related problems, and in light of broader principles of action like human rights, development, and identified some flexibilities of interpretation. 
And the second element would be also the opening up of the drug policymaking arena with increased participation, not only of member states and those authorized, as we say, by the convention to participate to policymaking, but all actors concerned by drug-related issues, individuals, NGOs, health practitioners, social workers, and of course, law enforcement agents as well. Great. And I, I think your assessment is absolutely spot on. Um, but I also recall it was it was a rather controversial when we think of civil society at the time. There was actually some controversy around 2016. And I think it took time for civil society to actually, well, many civil society to actually warm to the document. So maybe, Khalid, could you walk us through maybe maybe with that in mind, and uh, as we got from Ungas 2016 through to the 2019 ministerial declaration? Yeah, thank you, John. And I would just build up on what Diane and Deborah have said just before me. The political declaration of 2009 had in it both the UNGAS, but also its review and its renewal at the end of the decennial and of the 10-year period that has been uh, approved in 2009. And so naturally, when you come out of UNGAS 2016, with all of that momentum and all that political attention that was given through a UN special session at the General Assembly, which is the highest level policymaking decision conference at the UN General Assembly level. So that momentum, you try to keep it and try to keep going with it in terms of the implementation of the outcome document of the UNGAS and the new dimensions it has brought into the discussion from alternative development to human rights, to women rights, child rights, etc. And of course, access to essential medicines. But at the same time, you try also to keep on going with what Diane has spoken about, the one UN approach to it and the most significant element that happened throughout these last few years in terms of within the system and within the multilateral system was, of course, the adoption of the UN system common position on drug-related matters and the establishment of a task team to follow up on it with recommendations to support member states on the ground. Now, I will be maybe a little bit less happy with the outcomes in terms of this, because we're talking about very technical, very multilateral decision level making, but it is also about all those documentations that are adopted in New York or in Vienna and then approved in New York through regular procedures. But then again, about the implementation on the ground, how are they going back and how are they being implemented? So just to say that those three years between 2016 and 2019 have allowed, regardless for advocacy to remain alive, to remain big, and allowed also for drug policy to and drug control to remain on the agendas of international and national authorities. So there was still the possibility of, of advancing many, many objectives, and I think that we will get the opportunity to speak more about it. Thank you. Thanks, Khalid. Do you want to jump in, Diane? I would like to echo what Khalid has just said. When, when we're talking about the momentum that the UNGAS has created before, we also, we also did have quite a momentum after the UNGAS and after the adoption of its outcome document. And it, it was the first, the first time there was actually something like a breaking up of the silo-like thinking, each UN agency thinking about their strict topic. And, and you started seeing something more of a cross-cutting all through the, the UN system, which, which resulted in, as Khaled had mentioned, the UN common position, which I believe is, is, is one of the longer term uh, successes that, that Angas has managed to bring out. Great. And so how do you think about the last decade of advocacy and, and efforts to influence influence international drug policies? Was it a unique moment of change or, or was it a missed opportunity? Um, Khalid, I'll go to you first. 
I think this is one of the key questions and the hardest one to respond to. To, to respond to that, just to remember to maybe just remind two things, maybe the trigger and the enabler for this decade of reform. So the trigger was to some extent the, the 2006 war on drugs in Mexico by the Calderon administration, its impacts many years after, et cetera, et cetera, that has really got the international community to question the implementation. But then the enabler also for change has been coming through the HIV response and through the harm reduction and through the activism that has been ongoing for the HIV response for so many long years and through the harm reduction movement. So I would say that in the last 10 years, if we look at it from the perspective in terms of advocacy in itself, that has been a unique moment. It has seen partnerships being built. It has seen people working across the, the, the line and, and really working together. Partnerships being built between civil society, drug policy being discussed throughout different forums around the world at all kinds of levels. And so really built up that huge, huge discussion and built up also a lot of new approaches. And a lot of people understand it's a failure, but a lot more people where countries were where the majority of populations live, start also to understand that there is a problem with it, although they're not maybe convinced or have been reached by all the messages and the understanding of the negative impacts of repressive drug control. Now, if we look at it, that nevertheless, regardless of all these efforts and regardless of everything, we still find today that criminalization, for example, of using and possession of small quantities is the norm in the vast majority places of the world. So there is still a lot to do. And I call it the missed HIV moment. So basically, when in the 90s, the HIV movement have been able to shift that perspective and have been able to shift that view going from people that are sinful and people that are mistaken, et cetera, et cetera, to really showing the real impact and the humanity inside of all that story is something that has been not achieved in this last decade, for instance, for people who use drugs, for example, and people dependent on drugs, et cetera. So this is something that has not been achieved, but nevertheless, of course, there is a lot of differences and uh, there is also much more diversified publics that are concerned with drug policy and its impacts than with HIV. So thank you. And Diane, I see your hand is up. Would you, would you like to jump in? I would have to say it's it's a moment of change as well as missed opportunities. And, and, and Khalid just mentioned the missed opportunities. But I would like to mention that before the 2016, we had the divide of demand reduction and supply reduction and alternative development. And any questions regarding the issue around access to and availability of controlled substances just didn't fit anywhere. And, and what we have now is that I strongly believe that member states are very well aware that this is most important when it comes to pain relief and palliative care, that there is enough medication and properly just described also in quantities. So this is one of the major achievements, I believe, that we've managed. So Deborah, I was, I was going to go to you next, but would you like to jump back on that point? Just to, to add up on, on what my colleague just said, uh, I believe it also really forced the international community to stop and reflect on what have been done and what could be done better, as uh, we, just, um, we just mentioned, but also it forced the international community to rethink of how drug policy was made. And perhaps it's good to recall that the UN arena, the UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs mainly, has been understood to be a really highly constrained policy environment. 
because of historical ideology that went through it, of the war on drugs, of a strictly uh, security-oriented interpretation of the convention, politically also highly constrained with some equilibrium toward uh, the most preeminent entrepreneur of drug policy uh, that were the U.S. mainly and, and European countries as well. And also in, in its way of functioning with little space of actual debate and discussion. What the UNGAS actually forced and tested was also the capacity of this policy space to digest criticism, but also to respond to it. And I think what we saw, it's not only from member states, but also from CSOs and research actors, a real re-engagement of the drug policy arena at all levels, from the CND to local politics, to revamp the perspective and take this opportunity to actually have a debate and have a frank and open discussion as some president, well, the some president, the key president in this this episode, the president of Mexico, uh, Guatemala, and Colombia in 2012, wanted the international community to have this global debate and, and managed to actually precipitate it. So it seems like everyone's agreed that UNGAS precipitated a conceptual shift in international drug policy. And I think, you know, from my perspective, there seemed to be a significant, what we're talking about is a widening of what's possible under the international system. That's effectively what I, what I imagine UNGAS ushered in. And I think the question of whether advocacy was successful or not rests a little bit on expectations. Was there a clarity of expectations going into UNGAS? Was, was it a, a kind of loose coalition of you know, people who favor harm reduction and people who favor legalization or, or, or whatever it is that actually wasn't necessarily clear on what outcome they were seeking? And so that led to some initial disappointment, disappointment with the UNGAS outcome document that it didn't go further, but then eventually recognition of, oh, well, actually implementation is key. I, I, I know I'm asking a very pointed question there, but I'm going to go to Diane first on that if I could. I do remember uh, disappointments after the document and coming from, from the administration, I recall that I was surprised about this disappointment because for us, breaking up the three silos, for us adding uh, human rights, adding uh, the whole discussion on access to and availability of, as well as adding other cross-cutting issues was important and uh, proportionality of sentencing, for example. So there were there were lots of examples where we actually managed to, to achieve moving forward. And I think that exactly what you had said, expectations have never been really voiced, expectations coming from different sides, not looking at the whole of the outcome led to some disappointments. But as I said, for us, Angas was definitely a big step forward and a step that we are now seeing that we have to defend it so that we don't lose everything that uh, we had managed to move forward. Interesting. And I, I want to throw the same question to Khalid, but something that was related to me when, during the UNGAS process, very during the very end, actually, uh, was somebody uh, within the UN system highlighted that they felt some of the advocacy work had, had actually had a counterproductive a, a effect because it had mobilized member states that had fallen asleep, right? So more conservative elements within the system that had kind of gone dormant suddenly heard this very vocal reformist rhetoric and suddenly like, no, we're, we're going to throw up the barriers to this. And this led to momentum towards the pushback toward, towards 2019, that conservative states became reinvigorated after UNGAS, while more progressive states actually pulled into the background. I throw that in there if anyone would like to answer it, but also, Khalid, just to throw the original question back to you as well. 
I think in terms of at Focus itself and in terms of the groups and of the expectations, I mean, if you look at it from the very beginning, even the countries that have put forward the, the resolution to request for the UNGAS back in end of 2012 did not voice specific wants or targets and have not shared documentations with their priorities or, you know, made them uh, official or even in informal ways, etc. So it has been always a battle to understand on which side to advance, really. But the thing is that it is very important to remember that on one hand, drug policy is really cross-cut and it's very large. It touches so many people. I mean, this goes all the way to the Federation of Veterinarians that are very affected by the scheduling of fentanyl type substances because that's what they use for anesthesia for operations. So, you know, just to show how large and how far this is from uh, drug use and consumption in prison and criminal justice and trafficking, etc. So this is that brings people from very, very, very different perspective with a lot of different objectives together. And at the same time, it brings even the member states, as I said, have very different perspectives and have very different challenges, different challenges according to the substances they have, but the problemat- they have problematic issues with on the ground or also so in terms of, you know, being transit or production countries, et cetera, et cetera, which still today counts regardless of the shifting dynamics of the illegal market. So to some extent, I would say that, yes, it has been very complex to understand, but I think that the work that some civil society groups and some academia, et cetera, did together and specifically against the human rights violations that were so numerous at different levels of drug policy, that has been actually quite a good example of cooperation really among civil society and that hopefully would continue for the coming years because it really brought about strength. Now the worry is what you said at the end as well, uh, John, when you said about reinvigorating another side or opposition to any reforms that are upcoming. I mean, you have said something very important as well. You said conceptual changes because we're talking about conceptual changes. We're talking about great things that happen, but nevertheless, laws have been rarely amended. Policies remain implemented kind of the same way on the ground. Even at the international level, I mean, there is absolutely no discussion about the modernization of the tools and of the uh, normative frameworks or the conventions, and it remains the budgets as well for international aids, the budgets at the national level remain going towards repression. So it's really about seeing the indicators and, for example, by 2026, 10 years after UNGAS, have there been advances in terms of protecting women, specific women rights that have been documented through UNGAS and through the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights? Are they can be their evaluation of the implementation of better policies for access to pain relief? So I would say, yes, I mean, it's it's such moving terrain, but the worry is really about now when that political momentum is gone and drug policy is no longer on the agendas as it was for those last 10 years is how also, so we're looking if in terms of, is it successful? This is what we'll know very, very quickly if those last 10 years have really built up something strong and longer term, or as we say in French, parenthèse, like between brackets moment, that was that very, very good moment to advance a lot, but then just caps because of the lack of political attention and, of course, because of a pandemic of wars. Yeah, I think they're all extremely important points. And, and Deborah, I wanted to give the same question to you if you have any thoughts on it, but also maybe you could talk a little bit. You spoke earlier about, uh, you know, the United States as the traditional influencer and enforcer. But I think we saw a shifting of coalitions around on gas, or at least a cracks, a reemergence of coalitions. And certainly I think the U.S., to some degree, certainly under the Obama administration, stepped back from some of its traditional kind of uh, out in front enforcer roles. So what do you think are some of the coalitions that have emerged from the on gas process? 
Going back on the expectation uh, aspect of the question, yeah, you're right, there were no clarity on where the debate would lead and what we wanted from that global debate that a lot of uh, stakeholders were asking for. What the international community n knew at that time is what they didn't want uh, from that debate and where they didn't want this discussion to go. And I recall observing from the first CNDs following the call for a global debate, and just as the uh, UNGAS was actually organized and planned for 2016, I recall a great crispation of member states and most of stakeholders involved around the role of the convention in this debate and the role of the reform of the convention. There were really polarization around and actually a simplification of what the debate would be around a discussion of pro-reform of the convention and the, the defendant of the drug control system as it was. So from this polarization around the convention and the uh, possible reform of it that actually nobody really wanted apart from a small number of stakeholders, what happened was a reconcentration on the actual text of the convention and the basics of and the basic concept health security but also human development and wellness and from there different stakeholders rethinking their approach but also rethinking old tools of drug control. You mentioned the role of the U.S. in the history of drug policy and conceptualization of a, of a drug war policy internationally and nationally. We, in the UNGAS moment, what we observe is really to go back to the tool that were used. I'm thinking about alternative development, for example, and a reconceptualization of those old recipe into a more efficient and a more adequate understanding of those tools that would respond to today challenges and today uh, needs also in terms of drug policy. Yeah, if you know, to jump in on that, right, if I, I've written on this, that if there was a failure of UNGAS, it was a failure of expectations on some parts, I think. But I think to, to, to characterize what you've suggested, the, the, there was a group of stakeholders, I think, who felt convention reform as a possibility. And I think there was a chaos theory approach to that, that if we can shake the system, it will have to, re, it'll have to regenerate or it'll have to, it could fall apart or something else will have to come out of it. Um, and I think the response of member states during the UNGAS process was unequivocally, we do not want to touch the conventions. I did not hear really any clear elaboration from member states that they wanted to break open the documents necessarily. And that's where we saw the reversion to, I, I think, this idea of flexibility. Now, that's a controversial idea. I recognize that. And Diana, I'm, I'm going to go to you now, if, if I could. Yes, thank you, John. And uh, definitely, being from a member state, there was never, ever any doubt that we would want to open any kind of negotiations, any kind of change within uh, the conventions and any discussions or questions from a civil society just caught me totally by surprise because if we think about the majorities that we have in the CND or in the UN system in general, the majority of countries still are rather repressive in their approach to the drug phenomena. So changing or attempting to change in any way is like opening Pandora's box because you wouldn't know whether you'd actually manage to advance in, in the way that we, we consider advancing to be. 
I think it's a very important point. Um, Akhilid, I don't know if you want to jump on any of those points, or I also wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, what are the lessons learned from maybe strategi- strategies or tactics over the last period? And what, what, how can we learn that, use those lessons to go forward? So I would say that, yes, I mean, definitely in terms of the changes when I was speaking also about, you know, installing the the discussion around normative change that was really, or international norms, it was really about the longer term or opening that discussion. And we can definitely see that this is not something that has been, or still today, put on the table. Of course, this is something that is being called for by specific groups, but it is not something that, uh, as you would say, even any member states have been requesting for now. But again, for the future, I think that that work will all be useful because as countries move into a very different implementation of different, very, very different models on the ground, there will need to be a global discussion. And of course, there is absolutely no space for it today or capacity. But also that is something that is quite worrying because you think about drug policy having had that big, big momentum of attention and that really big moment of attention where even people that didn't want to look at it had to because there was that, that moment happening. And that could shift something, but nevertheless, that is kind of gone. And would it come back in the future? Uh, usually, unfortunately, we respond to these crises, uh, to these issues through crisis. And so, uh, hopefully, this is not something that will happen uh, in the future, and that we could deal with drug policy in better ways. So, just in terms of uh, strategies and in terms of, of advocacy strategies. So, basically, I mean, the the last in the last ten years, I mean, the very very initial, if I remember, at least in my terms of my involvement in this advocacy was just to open up the discussion. So it was just to bring in to the Commission on Narcotic Drugs and to the international drug control system views from other parts, from other uh, stakeholders, from other voices and people impacted far away. And so when we speak about the UN system coming as a whole, that's really also to look into that in terms of development, in terms of poverty reduction, in terms of uh, healthy lives, etc., etc. And so that was just the aim, just bringing voices, uh, try to have other people speak about it and inform. But I think also that the Commission on Narcotic Drugs has responded by opening up and strategically by welcoming those contributions and working with member states throughout the different multilateral fora, you know, to coordinate on how that will come. But of course, has kept the main, it's through its mandate, kept the full hand on drug-related matters throughout the UN system. So be it UNODC in the system or the Commission on Narcotic Drugs through member states assemblies. And so in that term, to some extent, the CND remains the heart of the discussion and that has not changed and will not change. And the whole strategies that were about to open up the discussion in other places, in other forums, to go into far away multilateral forums to speak about it in the Munich Security Conference or try to bring it to speak about it at the World Economic Forum or really to open it up ended up becoming contribution that have been absorbed by the system as it is. And the system in that sense, has also, you know, succeeded in actually absorbing all of these contributions and containing all of these contributions, welcoming them, but then putting the responsibility in the hands of member states to do something with them or not. Interesting. Yeah. And and Diane, I, I think you want to come in on that. Khalid just mentioned something at the beginning of his intervention that I thought was really interesting because he said the UNGAS um, helped to move into a global discussion and that should continue. And my question would rather be, as we, as we're seeing that there are approaches that that seem to be regionally similar 
let's just take um, the, the cannabis issues around Europe, for example, I, I sometimes wonder if global regional discussions would not help the overall discussion. What I'm trying to say is that regions throughout the world have different uh, main problems when it comes to dealing with the drugs phenomena. And and perhaps those discussions going in depth there and, and then coming back to the CND would help to take better into account the regional differences of of the problem as 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 we're seeing it. The other point I wanted to make is yes, of course the Obama administration did put more weight onto different approaches on on the drugs problem, but we may also not forget that the opioid crisis had started prior to the the Angas and Angas negotiations, and that has of course also helped shape parts of uh, the way some of the countries looked at at the problem in general. Yeah, and maybe just to throw an additional thought onto that is um, it's not just regional. It's that I think if if one of the outcomes of UNGAS was to widen the conceptual framework framework of international drug policy, it was to create space for national policies to potentially change and thereby create evidence which could then percolate back up to the regional and international levels and thereby change international policies. So that that for me seemed to be a potential uh, at least outcome of UNGAS that we could we could potentially see that happen. Deborah, you wanted to jump in. Yes, uh, and building up on what have been just said, uh, I think one of the key lessons also in change uh, brought up by the UNGAS decade was the realization in underlying this whole process that research and evidence is key for drug policy. Um, and as you said, we weren't back. To, it created a space for a national and local discussion, but also to um, infuse this uh, discussion into the global debate. For too long, drug policy have been based on social belief, moral fears, and social scares. And the evidence building aspect didn't have the place it deserved in policy making processes. What the UNGAS process showed and all the mobilization that it triggered was also the fact that drug policy needs data, needs qualitative and empirical observation, social study of the root cause of drug-related issue, impact study of the policy that have been deployed in certain circumstances, and also the impact on communities, individuals, but also governance structures and society as a whole. So one of the underlying success, I would say, of this UNGAS process was really to get the international communities and actors of drug policy realizing the importance of information, research and data for future orientations. Khalid, do you want to jump in? just wanted to actually go back to what Diane had said and link it up with what Deborah actually just added on data, because I very much agree that regional approaches are quite key. And when you see in terms of the responses, of course, the responses to trafficking, how you regulate your internal market through prohibition, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can find similarities in, in, in the regional level. Nevertheless, I would say also that the fact, and this also comes to the question of the data that Deborah has been adding up, is is not to forget the fact that a lot of drug policy and drug policy interventions depend on national budgets, but also on international support. And in terms of capacity in different regions, capacities are very different. So that's why there is also heavy reliance on technical assistance and international support in terms of these issues. So in that sense, that goes exactly also for the data where you have a number, large number of countries that don't have observatories, that do not have methodology for data collection. 
and also in terms of what data to be collected. And I think that there was this discussion among academia back in 2016 and even at the UN level. But again, it's all about which one do you do? I mean, what I'm trying to say here is from the international perspective or from also the reform perspective, and I would really be uh, trying to add this, most of the reform perspective around the world is also about demand reduction and it is about the rights of people who consume. Nevertheless, countries that are in uh, other places, and you can see it also in the reform movement in Latin America, the issue is also about citizen safety. It's also about, you know, addressing corruption. So I would say in that sense that the regional is really, really key, but we are in a very, very vertical and prescriptive policy that comes from top to down, where the decisions are already written in marble. And those are, I mean, the conventions are by the agreed language of the international community, the cornerstones of the whole system. So, Okay, so Diane, um, going back to this idea of national drug policies, you know, I think Switzerland, there's a reason why Switzerland was so engaged with CND over the years. And, and it was because it was very progressive by international standards. It was doing very unique policy interventions uh, in the 1990s and 2000s, which it was trying to gain room for at the international level. Where is the low-hanging fruit left for progressive countries, you know, countries which have better drug policies? What can they do to, to influence both national and regional policies and then ultimately international policies? I don't think there's any low-hanging fruit, anything that would go easy and, and quick. The phenomenon, the drug phenomenon is such that it keeps changing all the time. And in order to be effective, what what we believe is you have to stay on top of it. You have to understand the the consumption, what is being consumed, how, by whom. And only when when you keep basically keep moving with uh, with those developments and changes and then also make them known and uh, what was said before by Deborah most important keep having data collect data on, on knowing what what is there I think that is then when you can try and come up with new approaches and with new ideas and and those new ideas obviously need to be again accompanied by rigorous evaluations and it also has something to do with perhaps just trial and error. If if an intervention works, it's it's perfect. But if it doesn't, then um, you've tried and you just need to move on, learn your lesson and, and move on. I think that's what progressive uh, drug policies is all about. And of course, sharing, sharing with others, um, not necessarily so that others can copy paste what you're doing. That is just quite simply not possible because there are always these different social, cultural and economic differences between states. But in order to to show what you've done and, and where you are, I think others can learn and, and take out what they need for, for their situation. And that is how you can influence on a multilateral level what you are doing on a national level. Great. And if you know, if you think of international institutions or multilateral institutions as a public good, that's really a core aim should be, right? A, a forum to exchange good practice where member states can try to imitate or try to learn from each other. Deborah, you, you, I wanted to ask, you, you mentioned earlier the concept um, when the divergences started to occur in drug policy in 2012, 2013, 2014, uh, the US famously, or Ambassador Brownfield famously came up with this idea of flexibilities. We're now eight years on from that. How do you think that concept has sat within the system? Has it fallen into the background? Do you think it's become encapsulated? I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. 
Well, I, I don't believe that this concept has uh, ever really been captured by by most of uh, stakeholders and policy entrepreneurs. It was more of a justification, maybe, or or an opportunity um, given to to policy actors to explore uh, the flexibility of the convention, the different possibilities of interpretation of these conventions, but also the different uh, alternative possible within the drug policy uh, field, not necessarily outside the convention, but in the spirit of the principle defended through them, but also through other international uh, norms and standards. I believe the, the idea of flexibility is still there and is Although it's not named as such, it's tested and embedded in state attitudes, in stakeholders' engagement. There is an, um, an increasing tendency of policy actors like civil society, member states, regional actors as well, and UN agency really to test what the best response to drugs could be and to reflect on the complexity of the drug problem, at least to recognize that the drug issue is uh, multifaceted and amended a more dynamic and flexible response to it. One recipe doesn't work anymore. Uh, there is recognition of that, at least in some region. Uh, some states are still quite conservative of that idea. But there is also the, the idea that uh, member states are now, they are allowed to look at the different principles and values embedded into international standards and norms on drugs, but elsewhere, and to draw from their dimension. I'm thinking of the key concept of human rights, the key concept of human development, and so on, and to reinterpret their responses to drugs in light of those key norms and standards. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's where I see the flexibility working now and actually tried out. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good that's a that's a very good analysis of it. And so, Khalid, um, if I could ask you before I go into a final round of questions, what stakeholders are missing? Who who do we want to be mobilizing into this discussion? And for example, as you work in academia, do you think that's that's somewhere we should be looking more into the future? As we said, I mean, uh, you were speaking to Diane about the, the Swiss drug policy, and Switzerland had been one of the first country, and in different cantons or different states, you had local commissions that have brought together, you know, the police, the parents of, of school children that are concerned, that has brought us social workers, health workers. And this is also a policy, as we said, it's vertical. So it comes from the top, all the norms, but also all the issues and all the call for change comes from the ground, from really health workers, social workers, people that are concerned and families, etc. And so so to some extent, I would say that what the area really misses and what it missed is about what are the means that are put together actually to discuss drug policy. Because again, I go back to even if you look at the changes at the national level, and we've been speaking about the United States, and even when you see that they are investing more in harm reduction approaches to address the opioid crisis that they have been struggling with for quite some time now, you see that that does not really affect their overall budget and that it's still the Department of Justice and the Department of defense that are getting the big chunks and those are going into the repressive side. And it's also about really when you bring up the shift and when you bring in the attention and the light of the international community, usually you bring in also, you have to open up that very space to allow the others to come in, but also how to incentivize the other stakeholders to come and take this upon you. When you look at all the other UN entities outside of the, the, the concerned ones directly mandated with drug control, they have very, very heavy work programs that are funded through activities 
activities, etc. So it comes to the very reality of how do you bring in the other stakeholders? What would they want to be interested in specifically in drug policy when knowing that every other stakeholder can achieve their own targets and even the SDGs could be achieved by all member states for all populations while leaving uh, people dependent on drugs or people that are suffering specifically from these problematics behind because statistically they're not that numerous. So again, it's how do you incentivize? How do you ensure that people come in? How do they understand that that would bring in something to their work or to their budget or how to give them the support to look into a drug policy. So basically, this is the kind of detention that drug policy reform finds itself in. At one hand, it wants to hold up to every other uh, venue to be able to really spread the discussion and enforce it on the international community. But at the same time, all the others are also in very strained uh, capacities. And so they do not have sometimes the capacity to really give the focus to drug policy, although it does impact on their work and their mandates. Just to round off the discussion then, I'm, I'm going to ask everyone to just give their final concluding thought on, on what we've discussed today and possibly future directions for, for multilateral drug control. So, um, Diane, if I could go to you first, please. For me, what the past decade has shown is that if the progressive states stick together and work together and negotiate together, and if they all take this issue as a priority, then they can actually achieve quite a bit. We've seen that, uh, as mentioned numerous times now before, with the Angus outcome document. However, we have also seen in the past few years that if these progressive countries do not stand up for what direction their drug policies are going, then those countries that would otherwise be silent or not quite so active, they step in and we're looking at losing any advancement that we've made. And with this comes, of course, always the question of finance and the priorities that are being set by those that finance. And that not only um, refers to the UN entities, like UNODC, the major donors group, you give money to certain projects, but also, of course, to civil society and, and the priorities that they set according to where the money comes from. And I think those two things are, are very important to take along and, and not forget. And if I could go to Deborah next, please. I believe what what the, the past decade showed is that some stakeholders and policy actors were willing to take risks and to take an innovative path to rethink drug policy. That uh, led to actually having a global debate, even with some, its weaknesses, its disappointment, but also its positive steps forward toward a roadmap of seven chapter of it and more broadly, that this debate engaged a disenclaving process of drug policy thinking. Now, as any disenclaving process, uh, the risk also taken is to lose some level of homogeneity or at least some level of coherence and taking the risk of having different uh, policy directions with no common cement between them. Drug issue and the drug-related problems remain a transnational issue and um, 
certainly with specificity at the local and national levels, but it remained a transnational concern and priority and a shared responsibility. So I believe in the future, the big challenge would be policy coherence on drug, but more broadly, policy coherence on drug-related matters and social development and human rights matter as well. And to build that coherence, and especially in today's international context, dialogue building uh, would be key because one cannot only talk to those with whom he or she agree, right? So policymaking would need to be really also about dialogue building, evidence building, and exchanges of failures and successes to build greater coherence on drugs. And lastly, if I could ask Khalid. I would, of course, definitely agree with both Diane and Deborah. First, that the need for like-minded coalitions of member states that continue to work together, regardless of how different their objectives and views are, but that are very much on a set of values, those of human rights and those of really preserving human dignity in the middle of all this response between, you know, the licit and illicit, the legal, illegal, between the formal, informal, et cetera, et cetera, and all levels of intervention. But also, as Deborah said, it's about this innovation that happened in the last decade. So really this innovation and this force and momentum that was given to advocacy and how much the actors and the stakeholders that have been influential have been able to work together to, you know, go over and beyond their disagreements to really go to the points of agreement and solidify them and be strong and coordinate together. But innovation is to some extent, a blessing, but also a curse because you are in a course of innovation. So you need to continue to innovate. And what I would wish is for, of course, all the stakeholders for drug policy reform, specifically not all drug policy, but specifically drug policy reform, to really start rethinking the enablers and the objectives of their own strategy and to start renewing and innovating and bringing new things because continuing to try to reuse the same tools as in the past when you don't have the same political momentum and the same winds, you know, in your sales is quite difficult. And the last I would add is that one of the lessons that I personally learned from these 10 years of experience is that like of all of our advocacy around human rights is that, I mean, I do not like this vision because I am very, very attached to the universalism of human rights. But speaking about, you know, this Eurocentric prioritization of civil and political rights versus uh, social, economic, and cultural rights. And I think that we really, in terms of drug policy reform, need to start linking it more into the social, economic, and cultural rights where a lot of member states, especially in low middle income countries, do have a lot of sensitivities on these issues with countries that have children that are under five that are unvaccinated, with there's real issues with access to water and vaccination, uh, to water and sanitation, et cetera, et cetera. And so really start to bring in, add the level of the discussion of the countries and focus on the five rights that need to advance together rather than, uh, you know, always prioritizing the voices of the right of the individual, their right to privacy, their right of consumption, et cetera. Et cetera, et cetera. Those remain, of course, inalienable and universal and key, but there is a need for rebalancing how drug policy reform prioritizes some versus the other. And because sometimes it's just inaudible to some countries that have many, many other issues related to development and overall poverty eradication and other big questions on the agendas. Okay, well, that's been a fantastic discussion. And thank you so much to all of our guests for, for really terrific insights today. And I think our audience is going, to, is going to pick up a lot from this. So just to say thank you again. 
That's it for this episode of Crime Beyond Borders. I'd like to thank Diane Steiber-Buchli, Khalid Tanasti, and Deborah Limi. To access the Journal of Illicit Economies and Development, head over to our website, jaya.lse.ac.uk. Remember that it's all peer-reviewed and free to access. Find us on social media, on Twitter, at Illicit Econs, or LinkedIn, where you can become a member of the Illicit Economies and Organized Crime Researchers and Policy Professionals group. This has been Crime Beyond Borders from Jayad and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm John Collins. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.